Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Ben Greenfield, former bodybuilder, once recognized as the top personal trainer in America. He currently serves as CEO of Keon, a company that creates step-by-step solutions from supplements to fitness coaching to education and more in order to help people live a limitless life. Ben is also author of Beyond Training, Mastering Endurance, Health, and Life, and has two master's degrees, one in exercise physiology and the other in biomechanics. He has competed as one of the top-ranked amateur triathletes in the world, completing over 120 races and 12 Ironman triathlons. On today's episode, Chad and Ben discuss how Ben gets his day started, the different biohacks he uses to increase his productivity, and how he gets his creative juices flowing in order to write his books. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. Ben, thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks. So you are walking at your desk right now. You've got a microphone up, got some headphones on. Why are you walking when you're talking? I try to engage in low-level physical activity as much as I can during the day, and I can't exactly garden and push a wheelbarrow around while I have a microphone stuffed in front of my face. So so walking is the next best thing. And I find between, you know, phone calls and, and consults and even using uh, the little uh, Dragon Dictation software and a, uh, a headset to, to talk my way through some emails and articles, I can generally hoof it about, uh, you know, a good four to five miles a day, uh, just kind of passively walking on my treadmill while I uh, get things done. I'm interested in if you notice any difference in the quality of your thinking when you're walking or engaged in mild physical activity versus uh, sitting. So Nietzsche was famous for claiming that you couldn't have any good ideas inside, that you needed to get outside, get moving if you wanted to have good ideas. So I'm curious, have you noticed any difference uh, between being stationary or in motion and thinking? Yeah, there there are a lot of of philosophers and and authors who spent a, a great deal of time outdoors. You know, Thoreau is also famous for for walking a lot. I believe Benjamin Franklin was another. And many of these folks would do it to just clear their heads or get uh, higher quality thought. But you know, it turns out now that science, you know, exercise science has now shown that when you move, especially when you walk or engage in kind of low level physical activity, particularly something aerobic, you actually produce more of what is called brain derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF and cements new neuronal connections and enhances memory and the ability to learn. There are even, I believe it was the ancient Greek civilizations, uh, evidence of, you know, walking universities and lessons taken while outdoors. And I certainly think there is something to be said for the outdoors component, even though I think, you know, having a walking treadmill in, in your office is quite good because you also see an increase in BDNF from uh, near and far infrared exposure, which you would get from the sun, or let's say, you know, when uh, an infrared sauna, as well as from the polyphenols that are in the essential oils that you'd breathe in while walking next to bushes or, or trees or plants. You know, that, that's kind of uh, the base of the whole Japanese therapy called Shinrin Yoku or forest bathing is a way to, to lower depression and anxiety and stress and decrease cortisol. But there's also an increase in neurological capacity due to this formation 
activation of a brain derived neurotrophic factor. So, so yeah, I, I certainly think there's, there's kind of a biological component and an advantage to this whole walking thing. And, and that all being said, if I have some deep work to do, like, like a, like a, an article or a chapter in a book that requires a great deal of focus, I still do a better job, you know, sitting in a chair and writing something about simply sitting and doing absolutely nothing and having complete laser focus on a very high quality piece of deep work, I think still requires uh, one to, to not be moving, or at least I haven't cracked the nut of, of figuring out how to, how to do really, really deep, high quality stuff while moving. BDNF one, when you're getting that in your brain, when your body is dosing it endogenously, What's happening, if if I'm right here, I think it, what's happening is you're basically myelinating your circuits and different neurological pathways in your brain. So whatever you're doing you're, is going to be reinforced when you have BDNF1 dosed in your system. Is, th- is that a fair thing to say? You know, I'm not quite sure that it's myelination, which would be kind of the reinforcement of, of the sheaths that surround the nerve that allow for the propagation of the actual uh, signal to travel down the nerve. Uh, myelination is certainly something that you can improve by doing things like, you know, decreasing your intake of inflammatory vegetable oils or uh, taking in uh, DHA from say like fish oil or, or algae uh, or wild caught fatty uh, piece of salmon or sardines or anchovies or mackerel or, or even olive oil, you know, cause about 30% of that myelin sheath is made up of the oleic acid we'd find in olive oil. And most of the rest of it is kind of comprise what you get from like a, a DHA, for example, from fish. Uh, but in the case of BDNF, I believe it's the actual connection between the neurons. These uh, these synapses are somehow strengthened. Uh, and I, I believe it's acting on axons and dendrites. Uh, but but regardless, it, it, it's definitely improving the ability for for neurogenesis, for the growth of these new neurons. And it may also act on these myelin sheaths. If it does, I'm, I'm unaware of the science behind that. But uh, re- regardless, it's, it's definitely helping with the growth and the building of new neurons. What's your deep work process like? Do you have a formal one? Is it something that you get into a schedule for each new creative project and stick with that schedule for a month, a couple months? Um, what's your process like for that? By uh, throwing out that term, you're familiar, of course, with Cal Newport's Deep Work. That book kind of dictates that our our capacity, I believe, kind of hits the ceiling somewhere in the range, depending on the individual, between four and six hours, you know, closer to four with the amount of, of really, truly deep, high focus quality work that you can do during the day. And that's not generally all in one stint. A lot of times it's, it's broken up with these so-called, you know, Pomodoro breaks of 55 minutes on, five minutes off, or, you you know, 25 minutes on, two minutes off or whatever the case may be. And that's kind of the habit that I adopt. Typically, you know, I have a morning routine where I'm, I'm stretching, I'm having my coffee, I'm doing some breath work and some meditation. I do some gratitude journaling. I hang out with my kids and give them a little little pep talk before they, they head off to school. And uh, typically I'll, I'll do kind of like a, something, well, something to, to increase BDNF or something to kind of ease my body into the day. I like to do a little sauna session or an easy walk out in the sunshine or if the day threatens to be very busy and, and I, it looks like I'm going to have a lot of kind of cognitive fatigue by the end of the day, I'll even do my, my hard workout early on in the day. You know, the thing that requires me to kind of dig deep and, and eat the frog, so to speak. Uh, and in general, I have all of that along with breakfast wrapped up by sometime around 9.30 to 10 a.m. 
And at that point, I, I slip into the office and begin to engage in whatever the deep work is for the day. And that might be uh, recording podcasts and creating show notes for podcasts. That might be working on, on the, the article that I publish once a week on my website. That might be a chapter of a book or multiple chapters of a book or, or editing completed chapters. But uh, I will usually work in about 25 minute sprints. I don't time those exactly, but uh, generally at about the point where my body begins to get uncomfortable and I lose focus, I'll then break for anywhere from two to five minutes to stroll outside uh, because I have a home office. So it's pretty easy for me to get outside. I'll stroll outside into the grass and, and do some jumping jacks or, you know, I have a kettlebell on the floor of my office. So I'll stop and do some, some kettlebell swings or uh, I'll, I'll wander upstairs and make myself a little, you know, coffee beverage and then come back down to the office and kind of rinse, wash and repeat that, that 25 ish minute off on, you know, two to four minutes, five minutes max off scenario for about eight rounds or so. And, you know, usually around about two, you know, I'll start to get hungry. I'll start to want some lunch. I'll start to kind of want to turn the phone back on and, and get the onslaught of, 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 you know, boxers and text messages and all that jazz jumping out from my phone. But, but I generally keep notifications off Slack notifications, message notifications, et cetera, during those, those four ish hours from, you know, the, the nine 30 to one 30, 10 to two type of time frame, And then pretty much the rest of my day is all reactive, right? Replying to emails, replying to boxers, replying to text messages, getting little tasks done. But I, I usually have those, those morning hours devoted to that. And, and there's a questionnaire which kind of identifies your most productive times of the day based on your circadian biology. You're doing the Pomodoro method or something along those lines. You're taking some breaks and then you're doing all of that before you start reacting to the day. Um, was there a time in your life, I, I know you've had you got started in basically high productivity exercise. You've been excelling at these things for a really long time. Was there a time where you didn't have such a good routine or was there a time when you were going about building this routine that you could kind of share with us? Because getting into that habit of doing deep work in the mornings and you know really swearing off notifications and everything until the afternoon, not easy to do. Um, so I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about how you got to that position um, because th that's an impressive list of habits that you just uh, rattled off there. I've always been a, a creature of habit and routine. I was homeschooled K through 12, and I think I probably had to adapt a lot of uh, disciplinary mechanisms because uh, in many cases, my schooling was dependent on me. You know, my parents would purchase uh, books, uh, a Saxon algebra textbook and simply give it to me and tell me to learn algebra, right? And and I could get up in the morning and play video games and go hiking outside and call my friends up to shoot some hoops or I could learn algebra. And, and I've always been a little bit of a bookworm and somewhat academic from an early age. I think part of that's just the way that my mind works. And so I've, I've always had a routine. It has evolved. I, for a while, after kind of adopting this deep work type of habit would jump into that deep work without doing any reactive work whatsoever, right? Keeping the emails off, keeping the messages off. And I found that I would always have this nagging voice at the back of my mind wondering if there were fires I should put out or things I needed to take care of or someone trying to get a hold of me that couldn't get a hold of me. And so now uh, early on, and this is typically while I'm having my coffee in the morning, you know, I'll make my coffee and come downstairs and for about 20 minutes, I'll, I'll take care of, you know, any emails 
calls, Twitter messages, you know, little, little Facebook messages, social media, you know, the little things that I kind of want out of the back of my mind before I jump into the deep work. So by weaving that in, I find I can a lot more comfortably dive into the deep work without feeling as though there's, there's someone trying to get a hold of me or some little thing I need to do. So that's, that's been one thing that has changed. I've also, since, since I've kind of become a little bit more disillusioned with, you know, complete masochism from an exercise standpoint, you know, I, I got on, on, you know, a kick where for a decade I was doing like Ironman triathlons and it's kind of shifted into professional obstacle course racing. And before that it was bodybuilding. And I kind of had this mentality of, you know, you, you have your times when you bite the bullet and you go to the gym and you get the formal exercise session in, but I've since kind of changed up that routine too, as I've already alluded to, kind of engage in low level physical activity during the day, use a lot of these Pomodoro breaks to do things like jumping jacks or kettlebell swings or burpees or hanging from a pull-up bar. And so I find that, that that has allowed me to kind of scratch that movement itch during the day. I kind of like the mentality that, you know, by the time you finish up your work day, exercise is kind of uh, an option, not a necessity, kind of simulating what a hunter gatherer gardener-esque lifestyle might be, even if you're relegated to being in a cubicle or working in kind of a more post-industrial setting. And sure, if you want to compete in the CrossFit games or you want to do a triathlon or a Spartan race or put on a bunch of muscle or lose a significant percentage of fat, yeah, you, you sometimes need to do a little bit extra. I mean, like a trip to the gym at the end of the day might actually be a necessity, but what your goal should be should be to structure your day so that you're not actually feeling as though by the end of the workday that you have to go to the gym because you're just going to go crazy and have smoke coming out of yours if you don't finally get a chance to move. Work can be exercise. Uh, And also that I can get a little bit of that reactive work done early in the day. Uh, And then finally, probably another change I've made is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of known in the fitness sector as as a little bit of a, you know, as silly as the term may be, I I think, and and often overused, a biohacker, someone who biohacks, someone who uses things like, you know, uh, shining light panels on my skin to increase my collagen synthesis, or doing something like, uh, you know, using pulsed electromagnetic field devices to kind of produce some anti-inflammatory activity in the body while I'm, while I'm working. I've begun to, to weave a lot of those just into a typical day of work, right? So like while I'm sipping my coffee and doing that reactive work early on in the day, I'll I'll flip on an infrared light panel and do my infrared light treatment then. Or, you know, while I'm, let's say I'm not on my walking treadmill and I'm, and I'm standing at my standing desk, I'll stand on top of like a PEMF pad to get that same type of stimulus, but do so while I'm working. So it's not like I'm waiting until the end of the day and then playing around with all these little, you know, biohacks that I, that I happen to have littered around my house. I'm instead kind of weaving those into the day as well. And that honestly is, is kind of cool because it helps with your energy levels and helps you to feel really good during the day. But it also means you're not kind of selfishly finishing up work and then toying around with some newfangled device for the next couple of hours. The biohacking phrase, I, I kind of bristle at that a little bit because what you just described sounds much more like a scientist who has skin in the game than someone who's uh, just hacking things or just you know aggressively pushing systems to their breaking point. Because with your research and with everything you do, there seems to be quite a bit of rigor. You're a professional at this. At what point in your experiments and testing and iterating on yourself did you realize, wow, I've become an expert or I know more about this stuff than almost anyone in the world? At what point did you really realize 
okay, I'm a world-class expert at this. Uh, maybe I should get out there. Maybe I should start teaching this more. When did that happen for you? Well, I, I don't really uh, claim to be a, an expert in, in a lot of this. You know, there are, there are PhDs and, and MDs and, and pretty rigorous science, scientists who, who know a lot more than me. I do have a master's degree in physiology and biomechanics and have made a lot of this stuff my point of study for the past nearly couple of decades, but I'm, I'm still not as scientifically rigorous as many are, right? Like I'm kind of a cowboy delving into to some of the science and trying to weave together a good mix of practical information. And here's what happens. And here's what gives you explosive diarrhea and, and, you know, burns on your skin from electrodes. And here's what actually moves the dial and works and is safe. To directly answer your question, I would say after writing my first book that I wanted to be just a treatise on the, on making the body and brain better, right? How do you enhance not just performance, but also digestion and inflammation and hormone function and sleep and cognitive power. You know, how, how do you actually kind of weave all of these components together to operate as efficiently and as cleanly uh, and as powerfully as, as a human being should be able to operate? And so I, I wrote... Uh, this would have been about four years ago that I finished that book. Uh, it was called Beyond Training. And that book went on to become a New York Times bestseller. And I found that a lot of people began to rely upon it as almost like a Bible for their body and their brain. At that point, I really realized that I, I could do a pretty good job putting a lot of these pieces together. But I would say, really, for me, it, it was it was writing a book. And, and since then, you know, so many things have happened in terms of you know, new devices, new techniques, new medications, new supplements, new research on the human body uh, that I've, I've literally just, just uh, submitted my manuscript a few weeks ago for, for a new title, you know, a new book called uh, Superhuman RX. That's kind of like a, a fully updated version and even weaves in you know, some of the spiritual elements, right? Like some of the spiritual disciplines like fasting and meditation and sound healing and heart rate variability training for, for emotional and, and mental stability. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot more of kind of like uh, the longevity and anti-aging component, which I find myself increasingly interested in. Uh, but, but anytime I really want to prove, let's say to myself, or I guess to the world that I'm an expert on a certain subject, maybe it's just because I'm a book nerd myself and I highly value books but it's, it's to, it's to write a book on the matter. Your love of books that goes back uh, to your childhood, right? I mean, you were, I assume to be a, an early reader. And on top of that, you, in your bio here, it says that you wrote some fantasy fiction. So I would love to dive into that because it's definitely a common trait you find among people who are high performers in any domain. You know, they have some type of reading routine. So when did you first get uh, excited or immersed in the world of books? I would go to the library every, like I said, I was homeschooled. So I would often finish school by 11 a.m. or noon, but you know, I'd, I'd head to the library or my mom would drop me off at the library and I'd spend another couple of hours there collecting Grimm's fairy tales and Arthur Conan Doyle and, and J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And you're right, I was especially interested in fantasy fiction, but you know, any book under the sun and, and all through college, I, you know, you could often find me at the library, just wandering up and down the aisles, digging into books that I found interesting on subjects I was studying, you know, from biochemistry and microbiology to the, the science of building muscle and burning fat. And um, I have just always been a voracious consumer of books. As it's, uh, and again, part of this might be genetics. Uh, part of it might be a little bit of the, the nurture component. My mom was uh, very, very much steeped in grammar and English and spelling and reading. And she would just you know, take her red pen like a mighty sword to any essay uh, 
and I just learned to become a real stickler for things like grammar and spelling. And my parents were, were huge fans of having lots of books around the house. And, and our house is the same way. It's just littered with books. My children actually know, and this is just kind of an unwritten rule in our home that, you know, while if they want to, whatever, the Lego Death Star or, you know, some new silly putty, you know, chemistry kit off Amazon or pieces to make themselves a new catapult out in the garage. They need to use their hard-earned money to to purchase said items. But uh, if they want a book, uh, aside from something silly like Captain Underpants or, or Diary of a Wimpy Kid or something like that, they simply need ask and I will buy that book for them. No questions asked, right? So we, we do uh, a lot of Kindle, a lot of Amazon. There's always books showing up at the house. We still go to the library a lot. I try to read a book a day, which is easy for me as a podcaster and a blogger and kind of a, a voice in the, in the fitness and health and nutrition movement simply because people just send me books, right? To review and to read. And that's the fodder for a good probably 70% of the podcasts that I do, but I've got a stack of books up on my bedside. My bookshelf in my office is arranged not only by category, but also by books that need to be read, books that have been read, but uh, are being uh, currently arranged to uh, associate with an interview, right? With the author of that book so that I can easily grab them once the interview comes. And then books that I want to kind of reread or re-review or add to my weekly newsletter roundup or have a few little things I still want to finish from that book, notes I want to take, et cetera. Uh, and then everything else kind of goes out in the main book room uh, in the living room where there are just a vast number of bookshelves and the books are all shelved there and, and, uh, and, and categorized, you know, according to whatever business, uh, fitness, spirituality, et cetera. Uh, but I, I simply have always been a voracious consumer of books, loved to read, loved to take notes from that book, loved to share those books with others and underlining, you know, certain sections I find interesting or folding over pages tickles me pink that, you know, like two weeks from then I get to actually talk to that author for an hour and a half on my show and I'd pay for that privilege. And instead I kind of, kind of get paid to do it, which is amazing for me. Yeah. Podcasting sets up a wonderful incentive structure to, you know, make new contacts, build your network and, uh, and read uh, above all. So it's uh, definitely a blessing when you wrote fantasy fiction, or if you still write fiction, I'm very curious what did you learn about yourself, if anything? Uh, and I ask that question because when I've written fiction in my own life, I always learn something about myself. Or if I examine the writing from a psychological lens, I can usually spot a couple errors in my thinking or some basically issues that I haven't yet confronted. I see those as themes in my fiction. So I'm curious if you learned anything from your own fiction writing and uh, what your thoughts are on uh, writing fiction in general. I write fiction right now three to four days a week. I spend about 20 to 30 minutes on a on a fantasy fiction series I'm writing called the World Leaper series. Uh, book one I already published. That one's called The Forest in which uh, two young boys inspired by my own twin boys uh, as the protagonists of the story enter into a magical world where they have powers of the elements, uh, water and earth respectively. And they, they meet other, you know, children of powers over air and, and fire, for example, and save that planet. And I'm currently about halfway through 
book two called the ocean, which is, is taking place in a water world. And book three will be a snow world. Book four will be a sand world. And my children have nearly convinced me for book five to be a a space world. And it's kind of cool because as I do research for these books, I can take my children to, you know, for example, for the forest book uh, on wilderness survival trips and mushroom foraging adventures and, and, you know, uh, do native American sit spots out in the forest that surrounds our home and, and go and explore things that kind of inspire the creation of that book. And, and I've found, if anything, the main advantage to me for writing fiction, aside from the fact that I just want to create, you know, stories that, that inspire and enchant kids. And, you know, they're, they're about the, the level of, of young adults in terms of the, the reading level, uh, but that are also books that, that adults would enjoy or that, that mothers and fathers could sit down and, and read to their kids. And of course, they're all uh, you know, based on on the classic hero's journey, I learned of from great author uh, Stephen Pressfield. I love his books, and then I I found out about this book called The Writer's Journey, uh, written by Christopher Vogler, which kind of delves into how to take the the hero's journey, the call to adventure, the crossing of the threshold, the meeting with mentors and allies and enemies, the capture of the elixir and the the return back home, and the final battle and the resurrection. Uh, you know, all of that. Uh, you know, I weave into each story, and so. I would say, if anything, it's it's allowed to identify elements of the hero's journey in my own life and the lives of my children, and to be able to say to my children, "Hey, are you are you resisting the call to adventure? Are you playing it safe, or are you embracing this crossing of the threshold into, into a whole new world that's kind of scary for you, but that's going to be magical and that's going to allow you to live your true purpose and come back with that elixir? And and if you you know take Stephen Pressfield's new book, The Artist's Journey, perhaps take that elixir, you know that 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 you've discovered, you know, perhaps for me that that elixir on my hero's journey has been discovering the secrets to longevity and anti-aging and then take that elixir and turn around and, and serve the world even more, you know, begin on your artist journey with that elixir that you've discovered. And, and so, you know, I, I do a great deal of kind of what you might call scientific writing, or at least, um, you know, writing in, in the health and the fitness and the, and the biology and, and, you know, the, the biohacking and the nutrition sectors. And I just find I'm able to flow more creatively and kind of, kind of have almost like a prose like approach to my writing and weave in things like humor and in, in terms that, that the lay person might understand uh, versus me writing from a completely left brain standpoint. So I think it really helps out with, with the, the left and right brain hemispheric connectivity and the ability to be able to kind of tap into the creative and the analytical at the same time. If you make it habit to exercise that fiction writing muscle and to just allow your creativity to go wherever it would like, because that's what fiction is. You, you create your own world. I completely agree. And I think that getting for people out there that want to get away from the trap of perfectionism, writing fiction can be a, a great, great way to do that because the pressure of getting all of your facts, all of your writing meticulously correct in the nonfiction world is removed for a little bit and you get to exercise all your creative muscles. So it's really fun. Um, and that's really cool. You mentioned Christopher Vogler as well. So Campbell had 17 steps in the hero's journey. And if I remember right, I think Vogler has, he condensed that to about 12. And I, I like his hero's journey a lot because if you examine those stages, you can recognize them in your own life, or you can kind of view your own life through the lens of maybe I'm coming up on step five, crossing the threshold or whatever, like you mentioned. Um, I'm curious, how do your children respond to this in the world, in their actions? So I'm a new, I'm a new father. Our son just turned one and I'm, I'm really doing the best I can to build 
a healthy family that grows. And I definitely want the hero's journey to be a part of that. So I'm really curious about how your kids have responded to your fiction writing and then to the hero's journey in general. A, to embrace themselves and who they authentically are rather than to be who their peers might expect them to be. Because if you are going to be a hero, you do kind of have to stand out a little bit. If you're in your ordinary world, then you kind of have to be ordinary. But once you give yourself permission to be extraordinary, to cross over the threshold, to go on an adventure that others might have resisted, you you kind of have to, to think a little differently and, and be okay with, you know, like, you know, my children, they don't really play video games and they, you know, none of us really watch TV shows or anything like that. And, and they both really, really love to write and they love to cook and they love the outdoors. And so they, when they get home from school, they're plant foraging and creating new recipes with mom. And, you know, they started their own food podcast and on a rainy day, simply put on their, their puddle boots and go outside in the rain and, and play in the mud and they see me as an example and you know when the nighttime arrives they grab their favorite book and they'll curl up in bed and sometimes you know there is no bedtime you know we really don't have any rules in our house it's all kind of like well here here are the consequences for your decision you know if you decide you want to go buy yourself a bunch of Twinkies or eat the the gluten cake at the birthday party or stay up as late as you want that's fine like do it but but here are the consequences you know I just educate them on the effects on sleep architecture or their gut or whatever the case may be, then let them make their own decision. But go to sleep whenever you want to go to sleep. Just remember you have school the next day and it'd be good for you to have good energy levels at school. And, you know, they, they kind of think outside the box. That's a big part of them understanding that if they want to be a hero and get outside the ordinary world, that they do need to embrace their true authentic selves and live out the purpose that they were placed upon this, this planet to live out if they want to have maximum impact in the world. You know, for example, they, they're both able to, to succinctly state their life's purpose in one single sentence. Like, like mine is to empower people to live a more adventurous and joyful and fulfilling life. And Rivers is to write books that inspire and enchant people to adventure. You can, you can tell his is, his is somewhat influenced by mine. Uh, Terrence is to create art that brings joy. And, and he's, he's kind of a very funny, humorous kid. And he likes to write funny books and make funny art. And so, you know, it kind of aligns with his purpose at this point in his life. I would say... You know, when it, when it comes to the hero's journey, them understanding it and implementing that into their own lives, I, I think a big part of it too is their, their understanding of living your life for others. And even though we all have our purpose and we all have this need to make our, our lasting impact in the world, it can't be done at the sacrifice of others, right? When, when we look at a lot of heroes' journeys, you know, probably the gospel story in the Bible being one of the, the best examples of this, there is some element of that hero almost like sacrificing themselves for the greater good of their, their fellow humans, living life through this lens of not just living out your purpose, but also loving others as fully as you can with that purpose. And that's something that I really try to emphasize to them is, Sure, you can have your purpose and selfishly pursue that. And then there are entire books and cultures, you know, that, that spring up around that. Like I'm taking through the book, The Way of the Superior Man right now, right? And that's a good book in terms of understanding the male versus the female rationales. But at the same time, there are elements of that book, like, you know, leave your woman behind and, and, and don't do everything to please your woman and do what makes you happy. But, you know, kind of listen to the feedback from your woman at the same time. 
Whereas I feel that, that in some situations, if, if a man chooses to, to marry, for example, there's some sacrifice that needs to be made, right? Like if you're, if you're going to really truly love your woman, it might not feel like sacrifice, but there are things that you need to sometimes do to help others or to be there for others or to sacrifice yourself for others that you may not feel are truly aligned with your purpose or that truly give you instant happiness. But this idea of loving others and sacrificing for others along your hero's journey is something that I'm really trying to implement in their lives. And, and that, that can be through you know, local acts of charity, like, you know, we recently delivered, you know, bottles of wine and special cards to all the neighbors and gave them all our phone numbers and, and let them know to pick up the phone and call us and we'd be there in a jiffy to help them, you know, going downtown and helping with some of the, the homeless people who live underneath the bridge there to, you know, we adopted a little girl from Ethiopia virtually, meaning like we send her little money and care packages each month through this organization called World Vision. But just this idea that being a hero isn't about being the broad-chested, you know, prince swinging a sword and but it's also about being kind of the mother teresa, right? And just just being there to help and serve others at the same time and I think you you can you can certainly do both. Definitely agree and I, I love all that. Thank you for sharing. What's most interesting I think about a lot of your work and your message is that you're taking the idea that you should fix things locally very very seriously. And we live in a day and age where people want to focus on the macro problems and everything that's going on in the world that's wrong. But meanwhile, in our local lives and our families and our friends and our peer groups, there are all these opportunities where we can make sacrifices for others, where we can go out of our ways to serve in, in new ways. So how does your philosophy or worldview uh, look when it comes to helping and serving others? And why are you doing so much of that on a local level instead of worrying about what's going on at a macro level? Because if we all started to serve on a more micro level, it would change a lot of things on a macro level, right? So rather than trying to solve world hunger, we were just going to attend to food waste in our own home, take leftover food, bring it to the local soup kitchen, or bring it down to church on Sunday and leave it there for people who are walking out the church stores who might want a little bit of extra food for the weekend. Kind of like going through life with this idea, well, if everybody did this, it would fix a lot of problems. By going out and making sure that we know our neighbors' names, you've got a very small element of community building that if everyone were to do it, it would be very similar to like parishes, right? Like the city is all broken down into little sections and each section has its own little meetings each week and everybody knows each other's names. And even if the church in town is really big, you know, each of these little parishes takes care of one another and feeds one another and has dinners and hosts people who might not, might not have dinner or affect a big change with a very small change, I think is, is crucial. Like I recently became very disinfected infatuated with my children's local school lunch program and could have tried to get people to sign a ballot to whatever, allow more farm to table type of atmospheres at school lunches by instead just went to the school and taught a class to the fourth and fifth graders on their parents about vegetable oils, sugars, nutrient density, digestibility, you know, choosing foods and, and eating the rainbow. And if everybody who was like a nutritionist in their local community were to go and do that, their own kid's school, you know, one day, sure, there'd still be school lunch programs, but everybody would be bringing their own food to school. So it wouldn't matter anyways. Right. So there's just so many examples I can give you, but I think that the concept is pretty simple, right? Like don't feel the pressure to take massive action on a macro level because 
if you operate on a micro level and you inspire and encourage others, even use things like social media, you know, to do that. Like I posted on social media, all the PDFs and all the handouts and the video of everything that I did at the kid's school. Well, hopefully, you know, a few of the folks who watch that on social media will go and do that in their own school. And so there's, you know, that, that's really where the power of the internet comes in too, is it's so easy to share this stuff that's occurring on a micro level and allow for more massive change that occurs on a, on a macro level still using that micro level strategy. When you're talking with your uh, children, your family, or uh, your wife about these large macro issues, do you, do you share a lot about what's going on in the world that's kind of challenging, or do you just address questions as they come up? I'm really curious about, you know, how do we prepare the next generation of young people to help fix the world. You know, you mentioned space earlier. How do we inspire the next generation to go out there and build a future where we're a multiplanetary spacefaring species? I'm probably not that great at that simply because I'm, I'm so myopically focused on my area of expertise that there's not a lot of pop culture and politics and financial discussions in our home. We don't really have TV. And so a lot of this stuff we're even, you know, unaware of, like I'll be out and about, you know, and somebody will tell me, you know, like yesterday, like, did you hear about Notre Dame? And I'm like, watch some of their football games back in the day. Why? What's up? You know, and then I'll find out about the disaster at the at the cathedral or, you know, find out two weeks after the fact that, that Trump shut down the government, right? Like I just, I'm, I'm kind of tuned out to a certain extent for better or worse. You know, when it, when it comes to the kids, every human being was born with a unique skill set. You know, River is interested in addition to writing in chemistry, right? Like, and if I, if I foster that and if, you know, I get him into some local junior college chemistry courses and really, you know, build up his chemistry kits in the garage and just foster that and encourage it and allow him to embrace it and feed that passion of his, then maybe he'll grow up to, you know, to be a biochemist and eventually, you know, contribute to the cure for cancer, or perhaps he'll figure out some biological remediant that allows us to clean the water supplies, right? But, but he was put on this planet for a reason. And, you know, I, I think that my job as a parent is to simply foster that, foster his interests, foster his passions, and then keep faith that as long as I train him up to be a good young man who learns how to love others and sacrifice for others, in addition to pursuing his passion in life, that he will do good in the world and the very kind of airy fairy response. But we just, you know, focus on our passions and our interests and how we can most excellently engage in those while helping others. Politics is kind of the art of doing things with other people's money and fixing things on a local level, though. That's um, a whole nother art that I don't think gets nearly enough recognition, like the amount of interpersonal skills you have to have in order to go into your kid's school or to church or at a local event or a city council meeting or whatever to um, present a new idea and then influence the people there and kind of create a positive change. That's really tough. And what type of advice or maybe reading or basically what would you recommend for the people who are listening that say, okay, this is, there's something here. I want to start fixing things on a local level instead of worrying about the macro stuff as much. What are some basic skills that listeners can start to acquire or maybe bolster in order to succeed at a local level? Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. 
the book Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi, and even the book Digital Minimalism by uh, Cal Newport, and kind of begin to embrace this idea of the importance of one-on-one interactions, of flesh and blood relationships, and of kind of going beyond just the zeros and ones of social media and the internet, which, which does, as I named earlier, have its advantages, and instead really, really wrap your head around the importance of community building and the, the emergence of, of loneliness as a growing social epidemic uh, be, because of the fact that, you know, I was just reading an article uh, last week, you know, like, uh, you know, like there's this huge issue for better or worse, you know, kids aren't having or teenagers aren't having sex anymore, right? Like they're, and sure that lowers the spread of STDs and unwanted pregnancies, et cetera. But a big reason for that is they're just like sitting at home with VR headsets on living life, almost like the matrix, you know, playing video games and, and engaging with, with the opposite sex on Facebook and Instagram. And sure there, there might be some good things about that, but there's also a lot of bad things about that. And, and so this idea of just wrapping your head around building good relationships, knowing how to make friends. From a, from a practical standpoint, a few of the things that I like, uh, one would be hosting some kind of, kind of dinner at your home. My friend Jason Gaynard wrote a great book called Mastermind Dinners in which he talks about this idea of just bringing six to eight people in the local community together. Uh, and those can be people from completely different walks of life than you, people of different income levels, people of different interests, but simply getting six to eight people together at the dinner table, put the phones away and foster conversation for an evening. And that's something that's enriched my life is simply hosting people for dinners in our home. Another would be to take part in some kind of local tribe or community or culture, whether that be a church, whether that be uh, going to a regular open mic night where you see the same musicians or poets or stand-ups over and over again, whether it be a local plant foraging class, uh, whether it be a local membership at the REI co-op and getting more involved with the outdoors community, getting really, really more involved at at a community level and even kind of systematizing the process by joining some type of tribe or or culture or class. And then I I would say probably the last one would be uh, the the family aspect. And and when we look at a lot of these blue zones and areas where people are living a disproportionately long period of time, sure, we see things like not smoking and high intake of wild plant matter and consumption of of starches that don't spike the blood sugar that much and a large amount of, of low level physical activity time spent outdoors usually. But we also see a great deal of emphasis placed on care of the elders and value of the elders in the community. This idea that you don't reach a certain age and you kind of get quietly put away into hospice, but instead uh, we have places in our homes for our mothers and fathers to come stay when they get sick. And we kind of, we kind of pay it back to them, you know, the work that they did on us when, when we were children and we value family and we, we show our children how much we value our parents and, you know, and that'll come full circle. Our children will value us and we can create these robust family communities with communities in neighborhoods and areas where families are taking care of one another, where kids grow up seeing their cousins, their nieces, their nephews, their grandparents, their great grandparents, their uncles, their aunts. And, and there, there's something to be said for that, not just from a community standpoint, but also a health standpoint. You know, you build up this microbiome that's very familiar with and comfortable with your local environment. You build up the, the oxytocin trust hormone that you get when you're with family, bonding, hugging, hanging out together. And uh, there, there's a lot of advantages to that as well. There's a lot of other directions you could go, but I'd say at least start with emphasizing community, flesh and blood relationships, and you know, doing things like hosting dinner 
dinner parties, getting engaged with local tribes and communities, and then especially honoring your parents as much as possible and, and taking care of mom and dad and, and showing your kids that you do that. For people who are listening that maybe have not had a positive experience, whether it's with family or with groups, or you know, maybe they grew up in a family that was, uh, that was horrible or abusive. Occasionally when I run into folks like this or I, I talk with them, I uh, share some of my own struggles, but if they ask for advice, I'll usually say something along the lines of, have you found anyone who's been through something similar that has created what you want or what you aspire to? Have you, have you found a model? I don't like doing this because it's pretty challenging, right? Because you're talking with someone who's suffering or who has had a really, really bad experience. Um, I'm curious how you would respond to them or what you would say to them when they have gone through some really rough experiences and maybe they've lost hope on the idea that creating a healthy family or joining a healthy, thriving tribe is, is possible. What would you say to folks that are maybe just disillusioned with a lot of their interactions in the real world or with friends or family? You know, probably perfect example would be my own family. As I was growing up, uh, every single Sunday, my parents would have a, a whole bunch of different college students over and, and young people and even like older single people. A lot of those people wound up going on and, and getting married to each other and creating their own families and using our family as an inspiration to do that. And, and sure, it may be tough for someone listening in to actually go out and find some family who's home you can go crash at every Sunday and just hang out at. But you know, I think that there are elements of the local community that, that you can find that would allow you to tap into that. You know, a perfect example would be like a, a church. You walk into a church and a lot of times they'll have like weekly dinners or weekly breakfast where people who don't have a place to go have dinner or or, or join a bunch of folks for breakfast can just go and, and jump in and, and be a part of that. And I certainly don't want to be a Bible thumper, but at the same time, like that's kind of the role of churches in a community in many cases is to provide that type of experience for people. And I think that's a, that's a perfect avenue to, to tap into and, and to, to find an experience like that. The other thing I think that, that exists that I'm aware of are things like, you know, homestays, couch surfing, you know, things along those lines, actually just like getting in what, if you're, if you're traveling frequently and staying with families doing, you know, we, my wife and I did a lot of Agricola type of homestays and we traveled across Italy and got to know a lot of great families there and kind of embrace Italian culture and see things from the inside. And, you know, and, and, you know, these questions you're asking me are not questions I've, I've had before, have a lot of time to think about, but you know, th those, th those are a few of the places my mind goes. When you're going about building your business and uh, I guess ex expanding now because you're the CEO of a new company, um, I would love to hear what parts of the business or any projects you're working on that you're most excited about right now. And I would love for you to kind of like bring us into that process and tell a little bit about why you're excited because you're a passionate guy, you're working on things that are fascinating and I would love to just get a glimpse into that world more. Like I mentioned, I just submitted the manuscript for my next big book, Superhuman RX. And, you know, that's been two years in the writing and, and it's, a, it's a full tome on mind, body and spirit optimization. It's about 600 plus pages, just jam packed. I had a hard time finding a publisher who would work with me on creating a book that big, but I really wanted to write kind of like a perennial bestseller, like the last book you'd ever need to optimize your, your body and, and your brain and even, you know, achieve longevity and spiritual health and, and greater amounts of happiness and connectedness to others. And so that's one thing that, that I'm, I'm very involved in. And again, that's just been a matter of that deep work we talked about every single day, you know, get into the office and write. And, and research and write again. 
uh, with Keon, my company, my main role in that, in addition to just being a visionary and a leader, is to primarily use my knowledge of the chemical interaction of, of supplements and formulations to design new formulations for things like blood sugar control or muscle gain or fat loss. We're kind of starting to create more functional foods now, like, you know, antioxidant rich coffees and, and, you know, these, these real food bars with things like cacao and coconuts and superfoods in them. And, you know, that's kind of a playground for me to take a lot of the, the research and, and the reading that I do on, on formulations and ingredients and chemicals and, and actually create uh, supplements that, that make people's lives better. And so that's, that's a, a big part of what I do there. And I actually work as a virtual CEO because our offices are in, are in Boulder, but I travel to Boulder every month and meet with the team and spend most of the rest of my time kind of on the road uh, speaking and uh, attending conferences and, and learning even more and, and networking. And so, you know, my day is kind of spread out between traveling to go speak uh, and being at home and writing and being with my family. And then also being down in Boulder, meeting with the team and developing hopefully exciting and useful new supplements and, and formulations. So that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's kind of how life is looking these days. Ben, thanks so much for being generous with your time. This has been an excellent interview. And for everyone listening, we will see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.